Hey everybody, welcome to DarkCast Interviews. I'm your host, Jonathan Miley. DCI is a long-form interview podcast where we talk to game creators about who they are and their work behind the scenes, as well as, obviously, their recent or upcoming video games. In this episode, I speak with David Polfeld, the managing director of Massive Entertainment, about his recent book, The Dream Architects, which recounts stories from his career over the past 20 years. For more information about the book, you can check out the show notes for this episode on darkstation.com. There you can also find the original Darkcast as well as other video game reviews, previews, and features. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at darkstation underscore com. Find us on Facebook. Check us out on YouTube and email us at podcast at darkstation.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Now on with the show. And welcome back to Darkcast Interviews. I'm Jonathan Miley, and joining me for this episode is David Polfelt. How are you doing, David? And welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm doing great. It's uh, evening here in Sweden, so a long work day comes to an end with this lovely chat. Very nice, very nice. I, uh, I hope you've got something nice to drink, maybe a, a beautiful sunset to, to look out on. Uh, I'm drinking coffee right now, so uh, well, we, we get to be on both sides of the day. <laughs> so the truth is, uh, it's pitch dark, raining, and I have a glass of water. Uh, that's that's the uh, the life in the VIP lane. Uh, probably not as romantic as, as some people might imagine it, but uh, I, I like the realism, so that's that's good. Yep. Um, well, so so we're here today to talk about a uh, a new book that that you wrote and uh, came out last year, uh, called The Dream Architects, and it's it's kind of about your your story and, uh, you know, the last twenty years of uh, of video games with uh, David Polfelt, and, you know, honestly, it's been a while since I've talked to anybody about a book, um. And usually, you know, I, I talk to you about your studio and about the um, about your previous work on on video games, and then we start talking about your your newest project. But all of that is kind of encompassed in the book itself, I would imagine. So, I guess let's just start off with a little bit about who you are and um, you know, what you do for a living, working uh, currently at Ubisoft Massive, and and we'll just kind of see where this conversation takes us. Yep, sure. You know, uh, as you said, there's a lot of a lot of stuff about me and the projects I've been working on, and what I think is important when we make video games is is in the book. But uh, let's not hesitate to dive into that. I mean, it's not like everyone is going to read the book, so we can just as well share some of the highlights uh, during this conversation. So I'm the managing director of a studio in south of Sweden called Massive Entertainment. Uh, we were acquired by Ubisoft uh, in 2008, and I've been the managing director since then. Before me, uh, the guy who was in charge was the guy who founded the studio, and I worked for him for a couple of years before I stepped in to this role. So when I think back of it, I've been at Massive, I'm on my 17th year in the studio. 
I'm on my 12th year as a managing director and time flies, obviously. Yeah. I think we're most known for The Division, which is a game in the Tom Clancy series. And we are currently working on two incredibly interesting projects. Uh, we're working on a game uh, for the Avatar movies together with uh, James Cameron's team at Lightstorm. And we're working on a Star Wars game together with Lucasfilm. So we're currently busy with at least three AAA projects and a bunch of other small things. But the division Star Wars and Avatar is what's keeping me busy mm-hmm. at the moment. And I, I feel like the, the division in and of itself would, would keep you pretty busy. That's a game that I've uh, paid pretty good attention to over the last couple of years. And that's I can only imagine, you know, one uh, one stick in the fire that that's a bit that's that big um having potentially sticks in the fire that are also that big um that's that just seems that's a lot of plates to juggle that's that's... yeah it is it is and you know if uh well i I think one of the things that really uh helped me during my journey is that i started small i started with a two-man project and then with a seven-man project and then with a with a 20-man project and so on and when i joined massive we were around 40 people uh, so it, it felt like you could know everyone and you could learn everything uh, from the ground up. And since then, it's just grown and grown and grown. But when I look at it today, we have over 700 employees uh, in the studio. It doesn't feel like it to me. Uh, it just feels like some kind of logical extension of, of the small company that we had in the beginning. I think, to be honest, if I'd been asked to be in charge of 700 people, I would have said no, because it seems impossibly difficult and terrifying so i i'm like that you know that story about boiling the frog slowly i Mm. I guess that's uh my management career uh i would never have done it uh if i realized that that was what was going on (laughs) now i'm enjoying it but uh i'm I'm kind of a accident manager to be honest okay um so you said that you you started with um with massive entertainment about 17 years ago uh, but you had worked on some projects previously before that. Were you working in video games before then, or what kind of brought you up to Massive? Yeah, that, that's, I mean, part of that is in, in the book, but I want to say something also about the book that I've realized that a few people take it more literal than I intended it to be. I don't really think of it as a story about me as it, in the sense that my story is so important people need to know about it. Mm. I wanted to write a story about the video game industry and the characters that exist in this industry and the journeys that we go through. Uh, and what I realized is that when I shared my memories with other people, you know, in esports or in Activision or in Blizzard or in Valve, everyone was like, oh, yeah, I had an experience just like that. So it seems like the stories that I'm telling. I used them as uh, an illustration of this is someone's story. It could just as well have been someone else's story. Happens to be mine, but these are the kind of stories that we live through. Uh, And that's why it's called the dream architects. Uh, You know, uh, it's not really about me. Uh, I'm just a a vehicle to tell the bigger story. Uh, And I realized in hindsight that a lot of people think of it as literally about me. Uh, I mean, everything in the book is true, but... It's not really about me anyway. I'm not the focus of the story. So I always get a little bit surprised when people are like, yeah, why a book about you? What's so special about you? And I'm like, uh, it's not really. I will, well, yes, of course, it is about me. Oh, yeah, God damn it, it is. Uh, but I meant it as 
a character, you know, uh, one person, uh, one lens, uh, but it's similar to many. So I want to say that because I'm not narcissistic enough to believe that my personal stories are that interesting to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the uh, adventures that people live in the gaming industry, and especially in these first 20 years, are quite fun and quite interesting and haven't been described uh, well by anyone. So that's the book I wanted to write, really, about the, you know, the, the early years of the gaming industry. Uh, I come from a very different background, to go back to your question. I'm uh, from art school. I have a master's degree in fine arts. And my original plan for life was to be uh, an unknown painter in the basement making art that no one bought. Uh, because I thought that was super cool. I, I, everyone I, I admired was basically like that, you know, some unknown niche artist with no audience. And I thought, oh, my God, that's so great. I want to be one of them. Uh, I was perfectly happy with that. That was a great plan for me. And then almost by accident, I was living in Stockholm in the mid-90s uh, in Sweden. And that's when the IT bubble really exploded in Sweden. And suddenly everyone got a job. Everyone, everyone, everyone was just hired by an IT company somewhere. And it didn't matter if you had any skills or if you were a bass player or uh, a painter like I was. You just got a job and everyone thought it was going to be amazing. Uh, and of course, the IT industry in itself was incredibly boring and doing consulting for, you know, motor companies and early websites was incredibly uninteresting. But during those years, I began uh, getting to know programmers and engineers. And that was completely new to me because I'd been hanging out with musicians and authors and painters like myself. Um, but then when I met engineers, I realized, oh my God, these people have this amazing skill to create new worlds. Uh, even though they're virtual, they're actually complete in a weird way. Mm -hmm. And I got really interested in what programmers could do. And that was the beginning, I would say, of how I got into games. And in the beginning, we just did small games, two-man projects, but it quickly spiraled into something much, much bigger. And I would say that the last 20 years, I've been working on big games. Uh, but of course, uh, you know, a big game 20 years ago was a very small game compared to what we're doing today. Right, right. Very cool. So um, was it one of those projects that kind of either caught Massive's eye towards you or the other way around? What, uh, what made you want to, to work on... I guess at that point in time, real-time strategy games. Yes, so I, I was working on, uh, I was working in another studio in Malmo, and we were neighbors with Massive. So obviously we bumped into each other, and, and it was a very small community of developers. Everyone knew everyone, and the the projects I was working on didn't work out. So I was uh, running out of options, and I was actually ready to give up on the video game industry because I couldn't make it work. And then this guy called Martin, who had founded Massive, he said, well, why didn't you come work for me? And I was like, yeah, sure, why not? And I started working for him, but it quickly became much more serious because Martin was a couple of years ahead of my smaller gig. Mm -hmm. And he had more people and he had better engineers and he had better backing. So it was a pretty big leap for me at the time to go from you know a seven-man project to a 40-man project. And also the, the bigger business, um, they were owned by Sierra at the time, which was a subdivision of Vivendi Universal Games, which later 
uh, acquired Activision in this giant merger that became Activision Blizzard. Mm -hmm. So we were there in the early days uh, of that company's journey. But it, to me, this looked like the biggest stage and the biggest spotlight ever, even though it was just 40 man uh, on the project. Very cool. So I guess at that point, going from being a musician to working on video games, uh, were you an engineer? Had you learned coding? Were you writing? Were you just trying to wear as many hats as possible? Uh, what was, or, or did you get kind of straight into to management? How did, or managing people, how, how did that kind of all work out? Yeah. Uh, well, I do consider it to be an accident, actually. Uh, but the it's a combination of things. One background in art school, which gave me uh, actually an edge in the video game industry because I knew more about visuals and polished visuals and visual communication than almost anyone I was working with at the time. Uh, and I'm not a great uh, illustrator or painter, but I understand the topic really well. So I, I was considered, I think, generally speaking, to be the best artist, uh, at least, you know, theoretically, the best artist, uh, the most demanding art director without being able to do the things uh, with my own hands, maybe. Mm. So that was part of it. And then the second one is that I'm incredibly curious as a person. I, I really like uh, learning new things and I like meeting people that know something that I don't. And when I meet somebody that I don't get along with, it just piques my curiosity. And I'm like, wow, this is weird. I really don't get along with this person. Well, why Why is that? And, you know, maybe there's something I can learn from this. And the, reason, the, the fact that I have this personality made me a great spokesperson for others, if that makes sense. Mm. I was a great foreign minister for Massive where I was quite curious about the publisher. I was quite curious about the events. I was curious about the gamers. I wanted to sit on the community and, you know, type answers to people's questions, even though they were impossibly hard or really angry. But it, uh, the challenge intrigued me. And then the third part is that I tend to believe that I'm responsible for everything, even though maybe I'm not. But that makes people, that turns people into managers. Because if you're in a team, there are some people who only think about themselves, which is perfectly fine. Uh, others who tend to blame everyone else, which is shit. Uh, and then there is the third personality, which is, oh, I think I'm responsible for everything that's happening. So this needs to be great. I'm responsible for everyone's happiness and the end result. And if you have that personality, uh, you tend to become a manager because then everyone is like, hey, you can take care of this, David. You seem to believe it's your responsibility. And I'm like, yeah, it is, I think. Okay, well, why don't you fix the funding? Yeah, I guess I have to. And, you know, the publisher's angry. David, you seem to think you're responsible. Why don't you fix that? I was like, yeah, I have to. It's my duty to do it. So naive or stupid or whatever, but uh, I became kind of a natural choice for the team as a representative. And in hindsight, I actually think that's a pretty good way to select managers for companies because Many managers are managers because they want to manage and they want power and they want money, which are really bad reasons yeah. to be a manager. I think you you should be a manager because you want to see other people succeed. Uh, so, you know, now that I look back uh, at my career, I can understand why I was selected almost, uh, you know, by, by vote to be a manager. But 
when I look back at it, I think, yeah, that was a, not a bad choice, I think, actually. I, I am genuinely interested in making other people succeed. Gotcha. Excellent. So what... Um... You're the the managing director, is that right? Is that your official title? Yes. Or? Okay. Yes. So what what does that look like? As as far besides just trying to make sure that um, everybody in the company and kind of all the projects are succeeding, what 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 do you do besides a whole bunch of stuff? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I do a whole bunch of stuff, uh, which is probably eighty percent of my week. A whole bunch of stuff. Um, you know, I think instead of trying to list what I do, I think what I think is important that a managing director does is create a canvas so that people can be awesome. Hmm. That's what I think a managing director should focus on. And that's what I try to focus on the most. It's not about me or me expressing myself or me deciding what kind of music we were going to use in the game. We have experts who are supposedly way better than I am at doing all of those things. So if I've hired the right people, they already know the right answer. Hmm. So then my job is just to remove obstacles, remove you know, roadblocks, and make sure that they can spend as much time as possible on doing great stuff. Gotcha. Uh, the way to do that, though, is, I mean, and, and as a theory, I think everyone would agree that, yeah, okay, that sounds good. But what... That means in reality, and this is where it becomes a little bit tricky, is that you need enough commercial success to have the freedom to create. And if you get too snobbish about commercial success, you're likely going to limit yourself to smaller projects uh, just for that reason. And I mean, that's okay to do it, but there are quite a lot of people who want to make AAA games, but they don't want the hassle of, of the business. Uh, and to me, I, I think that's where I've been pretty successful in always understanding that it's an ecosystem. You need to manage you know, the money. You need to manage the publisher. You need to understand the gamer's expectations. There's press. Uh, there's recruiting. There is uh, HR issues, which send a signal in how you deal with them. And you can't say, hey, I'm a managing director. I don't give a shit about HR issues. It's like, well, the way you deal with them is a message. So even if you're not in love with the idea of solving a complicated HR issue, it's also an opportunity to explain to the rest of the company who you are and what you're about. And I think this is where I've been good as a managing director because I've never uh, neglected uh, any part of the ecosystem. Uh, in the end, though, to be honest, it means also that I'm a little bit removed from the making of games nowadays. And that's kind of the the sadness of it that, oh, but I used to be super close to making games. Now I'm more in an abstract way creating an opportunity for games to be made, which is a little bit less interesting than actually making them with your own hands. Hearing you talk about all of that, it got me thinking about the fact that, you know, you're, the, the studio is known as um, sometimes shortened to, you know, Ubisoft Massive, but you know, it's, it's Massive Entertainment. And it's never actually lost that identity. Um, I feel like for a lot of people, it can be very confusing what Ubisoft Studio is making what game because you've got your, your Ubisoft Toronto, you've got your Ubisoft Shanghai, you've got your Ubisoft Montreal, and Montreal seems to always be making like 1,700 games each year. Um, but do you, 
how has it been, you know, being massive entertainment that, that was owned by uh, Vivendi and then Activision and, and you know, has been part of the, the Ubisoft ecosystem for the past uh, 10, 15 years. It, are, are you just Ubisoft or are, is, is massive its own thing and, and kind of what does it look like keeping, I guess, that kind of um, identity for, you know, the, the people that you're directing? That makes yeah. any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a really good question because it's the answer is so complex. But I'll, I'll try to to kind of summarize it. First of all, uh, for a massive employee, when you say it's actually massive entertainment, isn't it? It's very important to us. We've never been Ubisoft massive. It's it's very often referred to our studio as Ubisoft Massive, but I, I think I did that at the beginning called... of the, the podcast. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it, it's it happens so often that we know uh, let's not be divas or precious about it. But when people say it's massive entertainment, we're like, yes, it is actually. Um, and when we were acquired by Ubisoft, the good thing is that they wanted it to be like that. They they did say officially when they acquired Massive that you guys already have a history, you have an identity, you have your own style, you have your own ideas. And we acquired you to tap into that. We didn't acquire you to turn you into a Ubisoft studio that we have uh, created ourselves. So we want you to be different. We want to understand what that is. So there was always a kind of a, a, an alliance in around this idea that uh, we could bring our heritage and our own ideas into the equation. Uh, I think at times that has been perceived as, uh, you know, maybe a little bit childishly defiant or defensive, or uh, I have been called a prima donna quite a few times, uh, but it's never been about that. It's always been about, I grew up in this studio as a professional and we believe in certain things that are necessary to make great games. And almost all of the games we have made have been pretty good or pretty successful. Everything is in the high 80s or 90s and has performed really well. So it's not like I'm just making up that, oh, I know what, what it is to make video games. I, I think, well, at least I convinced myself that I genuinely know something that is important for this work. So when people ask me to, it doesn't matter if it's Ubisoft or it's uh, or if it's press or if it's gamers, when they say, you know what you should do, you should really do this. If I don't believe that that's right for the project, I'm not going to do it. Mm. And, and that sounds cool until you're with the CEO of the company who <laughs> says, hey, Dave, I want you to do this. And I'm like, no, sorry, I, I'm not. And they're like, what? Yeah, but I'm just telling you, I'm not asking you. Yeah, I can't. I'm sorry. You know, I, I work for the quality of the project. That's my loyalty. And I can't do anything. Uh, that I don't believe is actually in the interest of the quality of the project. So the conflicts we've had with Ubisoft have been in those moments when when they were pretty convinced that they had something that needed to be done inside a game, uh, and we didn't believe it. And then we just said flat no. Mm. And we've had to remind Ubisoft a few times that, listen, you acquired us because you believe that we knew something, uh, and this is it. You know, we, we're not saying this to to be uncomfortable. It's just that this is our conviction and this is how we made our other games and this is how we believe good games are made. So we don't want to you know, be childish about it. It's just that we, we're not convinced about your 
alternative strategy. So a few times it's been really tough and there are some moments that are described in the book where uh, I was 100% sure that it was the end of my career because we were pushing some of those discussions to a point where it seemed impossible to resolve. Uh, and I had doubts. I was like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing here. I, I genuinely don't. I'm, I'm not going to change my mind, but it's not that I'm super convinced that I'm right, but I'm, <laughs> I don't have any options left. Um, but uh, And I think this is maybe part of what's interesting in the book for readers because almost all big game developers, no matter who they are, have been through moments like that when it seems like I'm out of ideas and everything I'm doing is horrible uh, and my publisher doesn't believe in me anymore and I'm running out of funding. What do you do? And I've been through that a few times and uh, I solved that riddle differently each time. But uh, I think uh, that's part of what's probably interesting to read about in the book is how we got ourselves out of those deep holes. So long answer to your question, but uh, there is an understanding to summarize it between Massive and Ubisoft that there is uh, a shared interest in keeping some of the original DNA of the studio that they acquired, even though it's not exactly the same as uh, other Ubisoft studios. Very cool. So looking back at the, at the studio before, um... Uh, the uh, the Ubisoft acquisition, Massive was making you know a lot of real time strategy games, and it, it's been a lot more kind of character action uh, focused stuff. Whether Far Cry or Assassin's Creed or The Division, um, is that is that a genre or a, a type of game that you would like to potentially see in the the future of of Massive Entertainment, or do you think kind of where you're at and what you're doing with um, you know, like the division two is, uh, I guess where, where massive is today and we'll see what tomorrow brings. You know, uh, we, we always joke about making another world in conflict game and there's probably like 300 people left in the world who cheer every time we say that, but, <laughs> um, we joke about it, but it's actually something we would love to do. Okay. Uh, making those games were fun and and it was a really really good period for the studio back in 2006 when we were working on world in conflict and we were building up to this hype that we had around release it was uh i, I think the first time we were riding a bigger wave uh, and it felt huge to us it was it was really fun uh, and there's something nice about the um i don't know the, the details of real-time strategy games that really brings out the craftsman uh, in the developer because you need to pay so much attention to so many fine details uh, and the balancing of a RTS game is really complicated. So it does require a lot of fine calibration, which is fun when you're a developer to find that perfect sweet spot. Sure. Then, uh, so when I inherited Massive, I, I genuinely thought that Martin had done a great job. I was like, ah, but he's great. Uh, I don't want to change anything. Oh, wait, hang on a second. I do want to change one thing. We were stuck in the RTS genre and we were a PC-only studio. And at the time, early 2009, this was a dying niche uh, of the gaming industry. PC games were so pirated that you could almost not make any money on anything that was on PC. So that was dying quickly. 
and for some reason that I still haven't really tried to understand or analyzed, uh, real-time strategy games were uh, also, uh, you know, a dying branch uh, of video games. There are very, very few of them left. Uh, uh, but there was a time when we had Company of Heroes, we had Age of Empires, we had Whirling Conflict, we had, uh, you know, the original Warcraft games and Starcraft games. There were many games that were absolutely amazing in this genre, but not so many anymore. So when I got the job to be a managing director in uh, director in 2009, that was the one thing that I wanted to change. Uh, and it was probably the, the first course correction that I did was look at other platforms, look at other genres. And through various hoops and loops, uh, we ended up working on a couple of things. But it wasn't just Assassin's Creed. It was also Just Dance for a bit and also uh, an anti-piracy system for a bit. All of these are described in the book. So it wasn't as straightforward, I think, as it might look hmm. post the division. It looks like we knew exactly what we were doing. But there was a, a couple of years, I think, even when we were exploring uh, how to move from PC RTS to broader uh, alternatives. Gotcha. Uh, just just out of my own uh, kind of curiosity, what was what was your relationship to Assassin's Creed Revelations and Far Cry 3? Uh, just because th those are two of my favorite games from those respective oh, really? series. Uh -huh. So um, I guess, yeah, yeah. how much did no. you have to do with them? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, first of all, it's uh, explained in great detail in the book, so you can you can read about it there. But uh, very different stories. Far Cry 3, we were supposed to just add a multiplayer layer, uh, and then it became a co-op layer. And then once we started working on it, we got heavily invested in the engine and the evolution of, of the rendering, especially of the engine and the controls. We had a, a lot of fights uh, about the, the, uh, the control schemes. And I don't know if it's in the book. I think it is. We, we built an amazing machine that we call the Frankenstein controller, which allows you to uh, retro-engineer any kind of control scheme from any games. It translates what you're doing with a controller into numbers. So when you push a stick on your Xbox controller and you have an acceleration in the game, the Frankenstein controller measures exactly how is that acceleration translated into numbers, which meant that we could uh, copy any kind of control scheme from any game if we wanted to. Uh, so we, we had like access to the a perfect imitation of control schemes from any other first-person shooter. And we tried to push that into the game. And at that time, Montreal was a lead studio, and they didn't like it because they had too much pride in it. So they said, no, nah, you know, we're not going to copy anything. We're going to make our own control scheme. And we thought, no, it's not good enough. <laughs> we, we have solutions here. We can give you any kind of solution, like, you know, this great restaurant. Like, I can cook you anything. Um but in the end, the one version of the controls that we delivered, I think, is the one that made it to the game. So we were much more involved in, in the overall experience of Far Cry 3 uh, than I think the credits uh, seem to imply. Okay. When it comes to Assassin's Creed Revelations, the story is completely different. We were working on something that was intended to be indie. Uh, we were inspired by David Lynch and progressive rock and, you know, these fairly uncommercial ideas of RT expression. Uh, and Paris really, really liked those demos. And they were quite weird and uh, very poetic. And then someone 
decided that this was going to be translated into uh, coma sequences in Revelations. So when the main character is in a coma, what does the main character experience? Mm. So they kind of took these poetic weird demos uh, and squeezed them into Assassin's Creed, which I think in hindsight it was a little bit uh, weird. Uh, but but I think what's frustrating for us is that the, we had very little time to translate demos into a final product that sh was going to be inside an engine that we didn't know that well. Uh, and I think the the original demos are still way better than what's uh, on the disc. Uh, but they are untranslatable, I guess. Mm. Uh, but I think if we had had a little bit more time to get to know Anvil and uh, to translate what we were doing into that context, I think it could have been way better than it was. Now, uh, I think they stand out as uh, something made by David Lynch, which means that most people think it's just weird. And then there are a couple of people who love it. Excellent, excellent. So as far as um, kind of the the history of, of Massive goes, I, I guess the, the next big thing, uh, you mentioned uh, Just Dance. Uh, so that's, I, I've never played a Just Dance, but I, I guess we can't leave it out of, of the annals of history. What? Um, we can. <laughs> so what, we can. tell me about Just Dance. <laughs> no, we can leave it out of the annals of history for sure. <laughs> we, we um, so the, the truth is we were exploring a technology very early that was a version of streaming before streaming was a thing. Now everyone, I think, in the gaming industry understands what streaming is and what it can be. But this was way, way earlier when it wasn't known as a concept. And I had an engineer who was trying to work on how do I control what's happening on a remote server with my telephone? And he built this software that allowed him to come into my room with a telephone in his hand and then log on to a server and play something just by moving the telephone. And I was like, where, where is the game? It's not, on the, it's not on my PC. It's not on your telephone. Where is it? And he said, it's on a remote server. And I was like, well, how do you control it? Well, I control it with my telephone and it's broadcast on your screen. And we we're like, oh my God, this is amazing. It's mind boggling. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at the time, it was really revolutionary. It was something that gave people vertigo. It's like, I don't even get how it's connected. So it was a very, very new idea at the time. And then we looked for an IP where this could be useful. And we we suggested to Ubisoft, we said, why don't we try to build this for Just Dance? So instead of playing it on a console uh, in your living room, you can play it with your telephone on any screen anywhere. And they got it. So we started developing uh, the project when it was called Just Dance Now, which is one of, uh, you could say, one of the standard ways to play Just Dance nowadays, where people mostly just play the game with their cell phone. Uh, they still play it on the console, but you can play it on the web, you can play it on the PC, you can literally play it anywhere. Uh, so I guess the version we began developing as a kind of a branch of Just Dance has become the standard Just Dance now. But we stopped working on it a couple of years ago. Okay. Uh, once we had done the technology bit, I think we lost interest because as much as Just Dance is an amazing game, it's not the kind of game that we're usually into. Uh, so we didn't, uh, you know, uh, tag along for the longer journey on that. Gotcha. Okay. 
Um, so I, so now next on the list, the, the, the game that I was actually going to start asking the question about, and then I was like, Oh, wait a minute. I forgot about just dance. Um, that would be, uh, Tom Clancy's the division, but actually, but before we get into that, um, kind of thinking about the division and being about, you know, this global pandemic that has happened and ravaged the world, um, how have you guys been as far as the last year goes? It's now, what, February 2021? COVID has been a thing for a, 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 over a decade now. Not really, but it feels like it. And um, how how are you doing personally? How is the studio doing? How have you guys been adapting? Uh, and I, I guess what does, uh, what does the future look like as far as uh, socially distanced and mask wearing? uh yeah that that world that that we're in yeah i i think uh you know the uh, for people who don't know the division it's uh it turned out that it's eerily prophetic actually oh, as a game so so uh, terrible i i so i i just to randomly spin off here uh i played and reviewed the uh the expansion last year uh warlords of new york and and i enjoyed it and had a good time and then then I just couldn't play it anymore because it's just like I don't I don't want to play this game where there's just this terrible virus that's wrecked the whole world. No, <laughs> like, no, and I it, couldn't bring myself to to do it. I just had to to walk away for a while. No, you're right. <laughs> it became. I mean, uh, the the ideas we played around with in the division were obviously exaggerated video game ideas, uh, and in video games, what you want. Uh, and this is kind of important to me because people can think that video games are silly, but in a good video game, you want a story with a lot of color uh, and a lot of you know strong ideas and dynamic tension. So when I try to explain that, I, I say it's like opera. You know, opera is very dramatic. It's about poisoning and it's about death and it's about betrayal and it's about singing your heart out until it explodes and then your lover commits suicide so which is opera uh, and video games are quite a lot like that it's it's the old kind of drama you know it's not subtle right. so in video games you use ideas that are super exaggerated like oh what if we push this too far yeah okay that actually works for a video game okay good let's do it and the two ideas that we had in the division was first of all there will be a pandemic uh, that is very fast, and in the case of the game, uh, very lethal as well. And it will start on Manhattan. Yeah, okay, let's see what happens to Manhattan during a pandemic. Uh, that was one of the things we had uh, as a found, founding idea. Mm. And then the next idea we had, what if this goes on for a while, uh, and people become lawless, and the pandemic kind of paralyzes the country and also the governance and creates these weird political cults uh, where people start living in alternative interpretations, where the question we kept coming back to was, who decides what America is, right? That was still a video game idea. And we invented these cults who thought that they were the true uh, interpreters of what America is, uh, and the soul of America was theirs, nobody else's, and they weaponized this idea. And then they stormed the, you know, the Capitol, uh, and they uh, barricaded themselves in the White House. All of this was video game ideas. They were intentionally exaggerated to be opera, 
Mm -hmm. And then, you know, come a few years later, you're like, oh, what is this? It's a real pandemic? Oh, my God, it's scary. It's on Manhattan? Oh, Jesus Christ. You know, look at these images of the real Manhattan during a pandemic. And then you go back and you look over your shoulder at a game we'd done two years earlier. And we're like, ooh, it looks like our game. It's weird, right? Right. But that, and then we thought, but in reality, people are not that crazy. People are still more rational. But no, suddenly you have these weird cults appearing in the U.S. and these people who believe that they are the rightful America. And it's like, Jesus, and they're weaponizing. It's like, God, it's it's worse than a video game. And and in, in reality, it's very, very scary. Yeah. I think it's it's terrifying. It's frightening. And it should never have been anything but a video game fantasy and none of it should have been so the division has all of these ingredients so obviously uh, we're in a weird place now with uh, compared to what reality is and actually it's kind of a uh, nice uh, escape for us to work on avatar and star wars also sure. yeah. uh, because they're so far removed and they're so dreamy and they're kind of optimistic in their own ways so because the division became too real and, and almost too dark Oh, yeah. uh, so it was, it, and as you said, you know, there, there was this moment where we felt, I mean, maybe this is too serious. It, you know, it was not intended to be really that dark, but it is. Uh, but we're still working on it and we're taking it in new directions. And, you know, but the, um, for us, we started working from home on, uh, you know, as it happens in reality, it's almost as if someone was writing a book about it. But on Friday the 13th, we had our first COVID case confirmed in March last year. And during the weekend, we tried to decide what to do. And this was in March when no one knew what to do. And it's like, well, do we send people home or do we just wait and see? Or is someone going to come and help us? You know, who knows what to do? Sure. And on the Sunday evening, I realized no one knows to do. And this is typically a situation where the managing director has to make a decision based on guesses you know, guesswork. Right. So I decided on Sunday evening, no one is coming back to the office right now. I don't know what I'm dealing with. I might be taking risk with people's health. I don't know. But since I don't know, I'm not going to do it. So I just pulled the plug and sent out this email on the Sunday evening, said no one comes to work tomorrow uh, and just stand by. We'll, we'll figure out a way to work from home. And then remarkably, it only took us five days to transition from every single person in the office uh, on one Friday. And then Friday, a week later, every single person was at home, fully connected uh, and working as if almost nothing had happened. And we're fortunate because we're in an industry where we can uh, continue producing uh, our work uh, virtually. We can distribute virtually. We can, uh, you know, patch things virtually. We can, People can enjoy our product virtually as well. So we it's like we skipped out from the real world into this stratosphere where no one actually needs to meet anyone. No, I guess you're right. You know, and then we just continued on as if nothing had happened. I do feel though that uh, it makes people stranger to to be uh, that to spend so much time alone or in isolation or with a smaller group, I think it feels comfortable because you're not exposed to the friction of other people. Mm -hmm. But I also, also think it makes you socially uh, a little bit weird. 
because you live in such a small bubble where things are adapted to your own needs. And then you forget that most of the world isn't exactly like you. And you need to find a way to hang out with people who are not exactly like you. That's part of it. And that's also part of what makes you grow as a human. So these small frictions that you have in an office or the meetings where people don't agree or the, you know, the, the moment at the coffee machine where you discuss something that just happened, I think they're much more important than we realize. So what I think is going to happen on our side is that we, once the pandemic is over and fingers crossed, that should be April, June, maybe, um, we're going to come back to the office, but we're going to allow a significant amount of working from home for the people who like it and for the people who can uh, be productive uh, in that sense. But I don't think we're that interested in letting people never meet others. Mm-hmm. There's some people who think they want to, and, and they believe that it's good for them never to meet other people. But I'm not sure I agree completely. I think it's other people can be a little bit annoying, but maybe that keeps you sane as well. So, you know, isolating yourself from all human contact, I don't think is a good idea, generally speaking. Sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I guess I, I've got a, a couple of questions going off from there. Um, but uh, I, well, first, I'm happy to hear that uh, you guys were able to adapt um, seemingly super easily and you guys have been able to continue to work and you know be productive and and do all the things that uh help make life fulfilling so that that's that's fantastic um going into the division a little bit um the the weird parallels to reality and how crazy uh the united states is or maybe was hopefully hopefully we're a little less crazy right now after the most previous inauguration um but if if you go back in, in time just a little bit uh, you know, with people storming the the White House and whatnot, the the most recent uh, campaign or uh, announcement or or whatever for the Division Two is actually kind of a, a crossover thing, some uh, DLC kind of stuff for uh, uh, Resident Evil. Mm-hmm. What was kind of the the impetus behind that? Because I don't know. And, and talking with you now, it almost feels like you want to go, okay, let's let's go somewhere that feels like it, it still fits with the division, but just separates separates us a little bit out more from reality because, uh, well, hopefully zombies don't exist. <laughs> yeah, you know, everything that's uh, uh, invented in the division becomes reality, so let's, let's be careful. But the... Um... No, you know, it actually came about in a very different way. We, okay. we, um, as you probably know, people who make games like to hang out and meet other people who make games. It's a fairly tight-knit community, and there's a lot of mutual respect. Uh, and even though we compete on some level, I, I think there's also uh, a family vibe around it because we were experiencing similar things and trying to be good at similar things so it's in some way you share the journey with other people even though they're officially your competitor and through some of those connections we've gotten to know people uh, on on resident evil and when they were about to uh, to reach their anniversary uh, they started asking you know people they know 
like, hey, we're having this anniversary. Could you be part of it one way or the other? So there are Resident Evil connections and tie-ins and celebrations and nice little nods and Easter eggs in quite a few games. Uh, we did our take on it, and I think, you know, under other circumstances, we could have done an entire zombie mode. Uh, but that's uh, uh, almost a new game in itself, so it would have required a little bit more time and resources. But it's more like a friendly handshake to some people we have tremendous respect for. Mm, fantastic. That that makes sense. But I, I still like the idea of just trying to, to maybe make the division too far out there. It's like, no, this can't happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Watch out, right? Uh, yeah. Until a couple of years from now, when you know the first zombie cases is, is found, mm -hmm. thanks yep. to its prophecy in the division. Um, yes. So I guess oh, we're, we're like we're like one of those medieval prophets. Oh my god! Wow, I didn't realize. Oh, this is horrible. Um, so uh, so kind of going into the division that was uh, really as you know after. Uh, after the Ubisoft acquisition, uh, Massive made the expansion for World in Conflict, uh, Soviet Assault. But then everything else that we've kind of talked about, you've been working with other studios uh, on on projects and kind of collaborating. But The Division was the first, like, this is what a uh, massive entertainment game is in, you know, 2016 or whatever. Uh, I think that's when that came out. Um, but... Um, how did that come about? Was was it the idea of the online and being able to play with other people? Um, was that more of the impetus? Was it wanting to figure out how to make a new Tom Clancy game? Was it where, I guess, how did you guys come about uh, landing on The Division and uh, and making it what it is? So the um, I think for the people who are interested in how the video game industry works, uh, I, I think that's probably one of the chains of events that is pretty well described in the in the book. Okay. Uh, because I wanted to explain to people who are outside of the industry, but also for aspiring uh, game companies or younger game developers, that these were the strategies we applied this is how we came from doing you know co-development on just dance and assassin's creed and far cry to uh, launch one of the biggest franchises in the company's history and i mean ubisoft's history uh, and it's it's not easy and it required quite a lot of small smart chess moves that we did fairly consciously and some of them with more luck than others and some of it just with pure grit, to be honest. But uh, it's one of the things I really wanted to explain in the book is how does that even come about? You know, how how does a game studio go from being still fairly niche, you know, in the RTS genre mm -hmm. to launch a giant franchise like that? What, what were the uh, reasons uh, and the pieces of the puzzle that made that possible? So I, I think... If someone really wants to know how that happened, it's well worth reading the book. I think there's a lot of good advice, to be honest, not to pat myself on the shoulder, but I think there's a lot of good advice packed into that story. Things like never burn any bridge. Hmm. You know, I've, I've always looked at every relationship I've had professionally as this might be important to me. You know, this person might know something I don't know, or this person might be 
someone I need as an ally two years from now, or this person might just be the person who's going to tell the next joke that makes me laugh. Who knows? But don't ever burn any bridges because lo and behold, you know, two years later down the line, you meet this person and you remember, oh, I was a douche last time I met this person and now I need them to do me a favor. Too late. That person hasn't forgotten. Mm. So I think I invested in a, a fairly wide net uh, of positive relationships and positive experiences that made uh, us eligible for making a AAA game with that kind of budget. But there were also moments when we were openly defiant uh, that are described in the book, and especially one where after Far Cry 3, we had a small R&D team looking at Tom Clancy and The Division uh, on request from Ubisoft, but it was still fairly small. And my boss was very happy with the results of Far Cry 3, and she said, hey, you know, I have this great idea. I want you to work on Far Cry 4. And my answer at the time, and this is not as well thought through as it sounds, but the words that came out of my mouth, and I regretted it instantly, but too late, the words that came out of my mouth was, I'd rather be unemployed. And she looked at me like, what? I'm offering you a chance to be on Far Cry 4. It's probably going to be hugely successful and great for you in the studio. And what I meant was that we had imagined uh, or we had programmed ourselves to believe that we were delivering Far Cry 3 as an investment in our own liberty. Mm -hmm. That was what we thought we were doing, and that's what kept us going every day. And even when it was really hard, we kept saying, yeah, but it's worth it. You know, this is it. This is the ticket. You know, you have to pay the price. Yeah. Uh, and then when someone said, yeah, but you're not going anywhere, we're like, what? That's completely unacceptable. And I was really taken by surprise because it was, I think what she was saying was the rational thing to say. But I think in my head, it felt like madness. It felt like, you know, telling a person on graduation day that, hey, you know what? I have a great idea for you. Why don't you go to university? It's like, what? That's stupid. I just did. And I have my exam in my hand. So what kind of an idea is that? So in my head, this was a completely backwards idea, although in retrospect, I can see that she was, you know, offering me something pretty good, actually. Uh, and then she said, so if you're not going to do Far Cry 4, what the hell are you going to do? And I said, well, we're going to work on the division. And she looked at me like, what, that small thing with 18 people that's going nowhere? Are you crazy? And I said, yes, but that's what we're going to do. And you're going to be happy that we did. But then I put my self and the studio in a really difficult position because I suddenly, uh, you know, reversed the burden of proof entirely. Mm. When we said we were going to do the division instead of doing Far Cry 4, or like this, what looked like a crazy bet instead of a safe bet, uh, uh, you know, uh, and not paying for it ourselves, we really had everything to prove. And that almost broke us, to be honest. And, and I think it's... Uh, pretty well described in the book how it seemed like bravado and for a moment we were super proud and super excited and like yeah oh my god we did it free at last yeah we can do whatever we want and then after six months uh, the reality of that began began to dawn upon us and then it just felt like we'd taken on too much responsibility and we'd been too cocky but but i think it's a, an important story to tell because when i speak to other game developers Almost everyone has had the same experience. Like, oh yeah, we were we were so happy we were going to do Overwatch, and then 
oh my God, we realized that it was the worst idea ever. Uh, and then what happens to a person when they go through those emotions and when they start regretting committing to these gigantic projects that take years and suddenly realizing, I, I mean, sometimes I think, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, the American space program, but what if you're an astronaut and you're on your way to the moon uh, and you can't turn the rocket around. The only way to come back is to go to the moon and use the moon as a sling, uh, the moon's gravity as a sling, and then get you know pushed back to Earth. But what if you regret, like two hours after liftoff? Ah, shit! I don't want to be here. <laughs> you know, I'm getting claustrophobic. People are like what now? And that's how it feels sometimes to to sometimes to make games that you're so committed to this giant adventure, and then you begin to think, oh my god, this is pretty hard. I'm not even sure I have the skills to do it. But again, it's a journey that many game developers have been through. And I think it's uh, it felt to me like something I wanted to share. And I think also I wanted to write about it because I needed to understand it. For I needed to understand my own experience with the division mainly. So you haven't asked this, but I, I do get asked sometimes. So why did you write the book? You know, David, why, why write a book about video games? And it started with... When we shipped the division in 2016, as you said, uh, the emotions I had when we shipped it weren't the ones I was expecting. Mm -hmm. I was expecting that this was going to be one massive celebration and that I would feel like the king of the world and vindicated. You know, yeah, I told them it was going to be great. Hell yeah. But I didn't feel like that. I, I had a really strange range of emotions, some kind of postpartum depression even. And I wanted to understand what I was going through. So I started just Googling books about the video game industry. And then I realized that there aren't that many and, and there are almost none that are written by people who have been working on games. There are a couple of really book, good books that have been written by people who uh, are journalists, actually. And they're great. Uh, but the book I wanted to read didn't exist. So I started writing it more as, what the hell have I been through? You know, why don't I feel happy about this? What's going on? I, I sh this should be the peak, but it feels like oh, something else. Uh, and then when I had started writing it, I realized that many game developers have gone through those same emotions. So it felt like probably this is a book that someone should write, and I'm writing it right now and turn out to be good enough to be published. But I think there are quite a few people who could have written exactly the same book, uh, except you just replace the division with uh, Overwatch or uh, Call of Duty or something else. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if this makes sense, but that's uh, it's a bit of a story about the division, but it's also, I think, a little bit of a story about the book. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, I'd... I don't know. I feel like from from the people that I've I've talked to, as far as just you know, in developing video games, the range of emotions on on anything, especially something that you can invest that much in, and you know, it's not just something that you're making for a paycheck or whatever. Um, you know, in a sense, you're you're making this game to kind of prove yourself, to prove your worth as a as a company. Um, and then you get done, and it's like it. it it's not just, you know, light shines from heaven and you've achieved whatever it is that you <laughs> I were wish. supposed to achieve. <laughs> like it's, um, um, oh, what was I, uh, I, I was just listening to something, a podcast or I, I don't know what it was, but, um, 
Oh no! It was it was actually a uh, it was I was watching a video about the uh, Pixar movie Soul, uh, mm-hmm. and the the idea that like you know once you play in front of this big crowd, then you can you can die happy because you you've done this thing that you wanted to. But after the artist played for the the giant crowd, then you know all of those people have lives to go back to, and you're kind of left standing on the stage. You did the thing that you wanted to, and and everybody saw it, and it was great, but. Now you have yep. to go and do something else. <laughs> like yep. it doesn't end with the the wonderful performance, like a, a movie does, or, or something. No, and and you know you're now you're talking about something that is almost central to to the dream architect, which is uh, a kind of an investigation. Again, using myself as an illustration, but uh, as a vehicle, but. Uh, an investigation into this confusion of person and persona mm. uh, and uh, individual uh, and professional individual uh, or identity even. And I think what many artistic jobs uh, bring is actually uh, an intoxicating and quite wonderful uh, blend of all of those things into one where you believe that your work is your identity and the success of your work is who you are or not. And it's incredibly fun and interesting to be in jobs like that. But it's also a little bit confusing and it can be incredibly damaging because if you don't perform well and you have confused your performance with who you are and your worth, uh, you're taking a lot of risk for something as silly as a guitar solo or something as shallow as a video game. And I'm not being very explicit about this in the book, but it's really one of the themes that I needed to explore because uh, I had really genuinely confused all of those things into one. And I couldn't separate what was uh, my worth from the success of a project or, or who I was from who I am at work. They'd all become one and the same. And I don't want it to be very different. I like jobs where you can be passionate and you can be yourself and you can be honest and you can have, uh, it's relevant to who you are. Uh, I like jobs like that. But I do think that we need to learn as we uh, get more professional that a craftsman also knows you know, the boundary uh, of the craft and the person. Uh, and... I think in the old guilds, you know, in the medieval guilds, I think they were pretty good at teaching people that, that yes, you're a painter, but you're also, uh, you know, Don Giovanni who needs to go home and feed your kids. Mm-hmm. It's also a job. Uh, it happens to be a job that you love and you're super passionate about and you care about every single thing you do, which is very fun or rewarding. But, you know, it's a job, so don't get don't get confused. And I think we've lost this uh, in modern schooling or in the video games or in the entertainment industry where there is a constant misunderstanding of identity and persona, which are different things. And there's another book I read that is wonderful, which is written by, I'm not a giant fan of the British band Suede, uh, but Brett Anderson, their um, vocalist, mm-hmm. uh, has has written two biographies, one about before he was in Suede and the other one when he was successful with suede uh, and he spends a lot of time uh, you know untangling his own confusion between 
who he was as a rock star and who he was as Brett, uh, which for a long time for him, they were exactly the same. Uh, so having an audience that didn't appreciate his performance made him hate himself genuinely and pushed him to a really bad, destructive life. And at some point he realized that exactly what you just said, which is that this is an audience. They're watching a performance. You know, this is not a personal relationship uh, for them. I might be very heavily invested in this moment, but for them, they're watching something and they go on and they live, you know, it's, it's part of a broader experience. Uh, but for me, it feels like everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think you, you can't achieve that sense of worth uh, from a stage. That, that is probably my conclusion in the book. Uh, you can still do awesome stuff on stage and you can enjoy it like crazy, but it's not going to give you the sense of worth that you thought it would. Uh, and as you said, you know, once the show is over, everyone else has moved on and is doing something else. And you're sitting there backstage like, was that the peak of my life? I don't, it doesn't feel like it. And I feel like I'm in a green room with the cold beer. That's it. So th- that's, uh, this is a long uh, answer to something you didn't even ask about. <laughs> Sorry about that. But when you, when you started talking about um, the Pixar movie or, or the backstage uh, of Soul, it just made me realize that that's exactly one of the things that I needed to untangle in my book because I needed to understand it. And I came out healthier once I realized how to to have some boundaries. You know, it's not a major difference, but there needs to be some boundaries. Makes a ton of sense. Um, so, uh, kind of shifting gears a lot. Uh, one thing that I want to say is wh- when you were kind of talking about the story of you know finishing with with Far Cry and uh, what you were going to do next. Um, I don't know. I I for one at least appreciate that the answer that you gave. It, it might not have been the best in the moment, um, you know. <laughs> but at at the same time, it's. I don't know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about with Massive Entertainment having its own identity. And especially from an outside perspective, uh, I feel like a lot of people have a lot of a hard time differentiating between all of the Ubisoft studios. And and if Massive had just gone and done Far Cry 4, it could have easily just become, like we were talking about earlier, Ubisoft Massive, where it's just, you know, it's just another Ubisoft studio, not not its own thing. So I over here I'm I'm uh, I'm very much appreciative of that that answer and that you guys yeah, no, have continued but, to thank you kind of I, I've taken I've thing. taken a lot of flack for that and I, I I genuinely don't want to be a guy with an attitude yeah. I, I literally absolutely don't uh, and it's unfortunate I think that sometimes my priorities come across as uh, as I have an attitude but. You know, the, the other side of that is that why would a person like James Cameron want to work with a game developer like us or, or some other game developer? And what I realized is that, that once you come through, uh, you know, just surviving as a game developer or doing some games uh, and then doing bigger games and better games, is that a person like James Cameron, he's only looking for a game developer that has that integrity uh, because he can only work with people who have that kind of integrity because he wants to make the best worlds and the best movies and the best games 
ever created. So he has no time and no interest in people who don't protect what they're doing. Who And, you know, the, the fact that we consider ourselves to be a bit like hobbits, you know, we're, we're, we're loyal to, to the beauty of the door of our house. That's what we care about. It needs to be great. Yeah. And then people can say, well, you're not very good at business, are you? And it's like, well, actually, I didn't think about business. I thought about carving this door because it needs to be beautiful because it's a hobbit door. Yeah. That's what we do. But then finally, I think we got rewarded when we met people like uh, Cameron, for one, but also the team at Lucasfilm mm -hmm. who were working with on Star Wars, where they genuinely appreciate that kind of attitude. Uh, and that's what they're looking for. Like, oh, my God, these people are, you know, maybe naive, but they are obsessed with this idea of making things beautiful yeah. or wonderful or to to make a door into something that gives pleasure. Uh, that seems kind of obsessive, but almost wonderful. Uh, so I think in the end, I feel like this strategy has proven to be the best strategy and I think that's also something I wanted to say with the book. I wanted to celebrate people who dream and who keep dreaming, even when it seems uh, naive. Uh, but it's not naive. You know, you can be uh, intentionally optimistic as a strategy uh, because it's a better way to make things great. And I, I think that's what Massive is. It's almost uh, stubbornly optimistic. Like, why can't everything be great? Well, I can give you a million reasons. Okay, but ignore all of them and tell me how we make it great anyway. This has been our attitude and, and our focus has always been, I've asked this question a million times. Like, don't tell me why it's hard. Tell me how we make it great anyway. That's the discussion we're going to have. And to, you know, it's not so surprising, but it turns out that that's a really inspiring way to get creative people to do amazing things because they want to focus on the creative. Uh, they don't want to focus on the fear of failing. Uh, but that's also probably part of the manager's job is to right. to say, listen, ignore the fear. One of my favorite questions, and, and uh, I'm hoping that this will help other people, is I ask myself and I ask others on my team, what would a really brave person do? And what's interesting is that once you ask that, it turns out that most people already know the answer. So if I ask you, Jonathan Miley, you know, in this and that, uh, whatever situation you're facing, what do you think a really brave person would do in this situation? Well, yeah, a really brave person would do this and that. And then the next question is, well, why don't we do that? If we already know that, how come we don't do it? And then people start realizing that, oh, my God, I have all of these reasons and all of these excuses and all of these fears uh, and all of these things that are preventing me from being, from being courageous. How many of those can I remove? And most people can't remove all of it. And probably that's good because we would be insane if we did. But, you know, if you just remove half of the things that are stopping you from being brave, uh, your life becomes a lot more interesting. And probably other people perceive you as much more productive too. So I'm not into this, uh, you know, life coach uh, mumbo jumbo. But I think as a game developer, it's a good question to ask yourself. Uh, what is the bravery? What is the brave option? And if you do that, your game will be better. Normally, that's it's. It sounds simplistic. It probably is, but there's a lot of wisdom in in that attitude. Uh, I've found. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, well, I, I, I kind of like where we've gotten to. I, I know that there is a future ahead of us with, I mean, you've already kind of mentioned the, the Avatar game and the, the Star Wars game, but, you know, th- there's also NDAs and stuff involved with those, and there'll be announcements for those in the future and stuff like that, so that I'm not really worried with talking about. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, you, you kind of wrapped up a lot of our conversation there. So the the last thing that I want to do now is uh, a part of the, the show that uh, I call The End Game, which uh, really doesn't have anything to do with... Um, you know, what we've been talking about is just some personal questions uh, for yourself. And the, the very first question is, if you could go out drinking with any video game character, who would you like to go have drinks with? <laughs> I thought you were going to say any video game creator. And I think I had a few in mind. Any video you, game we can, character. We can do that as well. That That's great. If Let's, let's make it a party. Uh, what <laughs> video game creator would you like to go have drinks with? And what character is tagging along? <laughs> okay, so I bring Fumito Ueda. Okay. Because I, I want to understand his approach to making games. And then video game character. Oh, man, that's tough. You know, probably Link. I want to know what Link is all about because okay. Link is such a central hero of, of all of the Zelda games, but we don't know a lot about Link. So I, I want to get that guy drunk and, uh, and know him a lot better than <laughs> we're allowed to in the games. Uh, fantastic. I like it. I like it. Um, so in th- this is kind of uh, these generally, you know, veered more towards uh you know video games and stuff like that so i don't know i don't know how we can adapt this but usually i ask if you could replay any video game again for the first time uh what would it be but maybe if if you could remake any video game uh uh-huh. what, what no would you let's like go with be? no let's go with replay okay um there are a couple of games that have had a profound impact on me but today i'll go with something mass market if you like but my first six months in world of warcraft uh i miss that experience a lot it feels like something that i can never have again uh but it was it was fantastic okay excellent uh is that something that you've uh have you gone back to like the the world of warcraft uh classic mode and and tried to to recapture that or is that just a a loss time no i yeah i think it's it's who i was at the time as well and also the uh the novelty of being in a genuine real online experience with other players it was so novel it was fantastic uh i I think i'm a little bit too jaded now to play vanilla but a a game that i would love to remake is actually dark forces uh the lucas arts game star wars game Yes. Uh, wouldn't that be great? Yes. Uh, such a great experience, right? Yes. That's right answer. That's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I had a response the other day because someone said, yeah, I'm playing Dark Forces on Switch. And I was like, what? They released Dark Forces on Switch? Oh, my God, I got to replay the whole thing. It doesn't matter how many or how few pixels there are. I've got to play it again. Uh, and then it turns out the guy was wrong. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, this, I I was celebrating. I want to play Dark Forces again. And then yeah. now you may think about, let's maybe make a remake. Yes. I'm just going to say, I'm, I'm going to slide this out there. I know you guys are making a Star Wars game. But if you can make Kyle Katarn canon again, 
I will buy every copy of the the massive entertainment Star Wars game that I can. Just <laughs> I am calling the core team now to give them these instructions. <laughs> Sounds good. Thank you. Thank you. Um, but uh, so uh, you know, we we all kind of have blind spots um, in video games, whether it's it's genres or just parts of the the industry, or it may be entire. Uh, kind of regional um, de- design philosophies, but we, we all have blind spots when it comes to video games. What What's a particular blind spot in video games that you kind of wish that you uh, could dig into, but maybe you never have? Maybe it's a game series. Maybe it's, you know, um, I don't know, Japanese RPGs or maybe whatever the case may be. What's what's something that you haven't experienced These are great, as much as you'd like great to? Great questions because they trigger so many ideas in different directions. You know, one thing that I I dream about that I don't know if I will ever experience is working in uh, in Japan in a Japanese uh, studio because it seems to me that they have a slightly different approach to making games mm-hmm. and they re- rely more heavily on the strong directors like Hideo Kojima or Fumito Ueda and, and similar. But they also produce some really, really interesting results. Uh, and I think I love Japan. I've never been there, crazily enough. So that's certainly on my bucket list. And I think it would be very different to to make games in the way that they do them. Maybe that's uh, just a romantic, uh, you know, outsider's view. But yeah. I, I would like to know what that's like, though. Uh and then, you know, a blind spot I have for games that I don't understand is session-based games. I, I think I'm one of the few people in the video game industry who I, I just don't fall in love with any kind of session-based game. It doesn't matter if it's, uh, uh, you know, League of Legends or if it's Overwatch or if it's any one of those. I, I just feel like I'm stuck in an endless loop of nothing. Uh, and it, I, I go crazy every time, you know, a match is over. I'm like, okay reset begin at zero and i'm like what we're going to do exactly the same thing again and then after 20 minutes no it's the same it's like what yeah and then it's the same and so how can anyone play more than three matches i i simply don't get it uh, and that's i mean multiplayer games when you shoot stuff is easier to get i think like the old uh, unreal or um, even Marathon, you know, the, the very old game by Bungie before Halo and, and Halo to some degree. But when they just become arena, uh, you know, very heavy boundaries, no creativity and just repetitive, I absolutely don't get it, which is, I think, a blind spot because obviously those are some of the most successful games ever created. So I am missing something, but I just don't get it, yeah. to be honest. I, I feel you. I, I understand that. I <laughs> Uh, I've never gotten into those, so I, I think it's something that affects a lot of us, but there obviously are a ton of people that love it, so good on yep, them. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not bad entertainment. It's just that I, I don't get it. I, I literally don't get it. Yeah. Well, what is a, uh, what's a good trend in video games um, that you would like to see more of? Uh, and this is an intentionally vague question. Um, you mm-hmm. can take it really however you want to. Just something in video games that um, you like and it should be more prevalent. Uh, I, I think there are two areas of video games that are seriously under uh, explored. One is narrative. 
you know, we, we have the most powerful medium ever created at our fingertips. And we haven't figured out a way to tell a story that actually means a lot or moves people. I think that's because we are not paying attention to it or because we are clumsy. Um, but, you know, if you look at early TV, they didn't know how to make good TV uh, in the beginning either. Right. And eventually they learned. And it's the same with movies. You know, the very first movie created was a train that arrived at a station. That's it. Mm-hmm. That was the entire movie. And everyone's like, oh, my God, that's mind-boggling. Can we possibly do something more? No, I think that's it, dude. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, movies became something much more sophisticated. But I do think that video games today, narratively speaking, and if we look at story, is a little bit like that first movie. Like someone arrives, there's a problem, fix it. That's the story? Yeah, kind of. And like, oh, wow. You know, I think we can do better. Yeah. Uh, but we need to understand how stories told in a cooperative way. And, and when I say cooperative, I mean that we've delegated, delegated so much of the power to the player. Mm. So it needs to be a story that is somehow created together with them. Yeah. You, you can't force a story on top of a gamer who is in charge of the controller. So how do we do that? I don't know. But I think once we figure that out, it's going to be amazing, mm. way better than old, old media. The other area that I think is very underexplored is uh, AI in the sense that we build AI to uh, choose between patterns today. This may be a little bit, this might be a little bit technical, but the way we build AI in games is we just give it options. Like, hey, you have 16 behaviors to choose from uh, and the following events will trigger your choice. So now you're in pattern eight or pattern nine or pattern 10. And the AI can only flip-flop between them. I think this is incredibly primitive. And it doesn't have to be. Uh, so where is the grayscale in how the AI behaves or how does it adapt or how does it learn? And just to give you a simple example, if you play um, a sports game, let's say you play a lot of FIFA, we do have the capacity to create an AI that analyzes your patterns of play and that then chooses another strategy because it begins to see that oh you like to play football like this well you know what we're going to change the way we play defense so that strategy is not going to work for you anymore and then you're like what the hell what happened how did this happen you know the ai is uh, is beginning to expose my weaknesses oh my god now i have to change my strategy and try something else or try different players or and so on. And you get all of that when you play against other humans because that's what other humans do. But it's entirely possible to create AIs that is just as sophisticated and just as interesting. So imagine a game like Skyrim where you play uh, against a tremendously large amount of NPCs and they become predictable very fast. But what if those NPCs had the ability to learn and adapt and to think about what you were doing and to make it harder or easier uh, for you or to help you or to fight you, depending on what was in the interest of the AI. I don't understand why we're not investing more in this, because I think games would be way better if we just could create some grayscale in in the AI's behavior. That sounds awesome. Mm-hmm. Um... And am I supposed to just give you one word for each? Question? No, no, like, no, that, no, that's like great. No, like I said, cool. um, long answers are, are 
what what I love in this sort of thing. And um, no, but it just I, I I just started kind of thinking as as you were talking about. Um, I, I wonder if actually kind of the answer to both of those things are um, or what what you said there are actually part of the same answer as far as storytelling in video games and how AI uh, potentially will play a future in that in terms of reacting to what the player does because, you know, no art is complete until somebody has experienced it and just the part that the experiencer plays in making the art is much larger on video games than it is in, in any other media. And so if the art can then essentially respond back in a more sophisticated way, then like you mentioned earlier, you know, picking from one of 16 patterns, um, how will that kind of, I don't know, make potentially make that, that storytelling vehicle um, work you that know, much better? No, but it makes sense. It makes sense because I, I think the problem with, uh, when we use old school storytelling techniques in video games, we completely shoot ourselves in the foot because, and I mean, we do it because it's accepted and it works reasonably well. But if you think about it, old school storytelling comes from a sender and it reduces the player to an audience. Right. So, okay. So that's how we tell stories in games or in movies and in TV. That's okay. And people accept it and they recognize it. But what if the story was actually about you in a way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if we look at, for instance, say that you and I meet in a bar and I'm trying to tell you a funny story, I will begin adapting my pacing and the way I tell the story and you know how I reach the punchline and how overboard I go with the punchline, depending on the reactions I get as I'm telling the story. Mm-hmm. So in the end, I am tailor-making my storytelling to you. And that is the kind of storytelling I think we need to investigate in video games. So you're right, it's actually part of the uh, AI uh, and the AI's ability to understand and recognize what you're doing and then adapt accordingly in a way that is perceived as meaningful. But you know what? All of this is possible. It's not like I'm talking science fiction here. It's just that it's not considered necessary today in video games. So nobody feels that they need to do it. But I I do think those are underexplored areas that would significantly make games better. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So to try to to flip um, that question on its head, what is a a bad trend or maybe an overexplored area of video games that uh, you would wish would be a little less explored? Uh, actually, that's a very easy question. Uh, destruction. Okay. Uh, the idea that we can use things like weapons to destroy things like houses or tanks or uh, aliens or humans um, is incredibly uh, overused in video games. And I, I consider that to be uh, a very primitive uh, use of a very, very powerful feature. Hmm. So I get it. We we have lots of action in our games too. And destruction is ridiculously fun when you do it well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a, a game engine that is good at displaying destruction, doesn't matter if it's glass or bricks or, uh, you know, flesh. Uh, it's incredibly fun to play with. 
but it's so, so overused. And I, I think we should try to develop that formula and, and come up with some more, uh, maybe, you know, smarter ways to enjoy the worlds we create uh, than just shooting at stuff. Mm-hmm. Not, say, not saying it's boring, not yeah. saying it's boring in itself, but uh, it's, it's uh, present in almost any game in any genre for any age. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's overused. Gotcha. Good. I like it. I like it. Uh, all right, so this is the, uh, the second to the last question. Um, you have been the, the managing director at Massive Entertainment for over a decade. You've been with the studio for uh, almost two decades. Uh, you've, you've got to work on a lot of really fantastic video games over the years. But if you could try any other profession, uh, what would you like to give a shot? Just no holds barred, just whatever. <laughs> okay, if I had the guts, I'd want to be an astronaut. Okay, for sure. I think that I think that's incredibly cool. So is is that or the brave answer? Was, if I'm a is that the, is that the... <laughs> yes, uh, yes, that's the brave answer. I I don't think I have uh, the the courage to be an astronaut, really. But if I could be anything, that would be cool. Uh, professional athlete would be amazing because it seems so impossibly far away from the life I've lived. Uh, and then, you know what? I am, to some degree, I am living the dream in the sense that I got this question many years ago. Like, if you weren't working with video games, what would you do? Mm-hmm. And the answer was, I, I want to be an author. Mm-hmm. And at the time, that seemed like uh, just as ludicrous as becoming an astronaut. Uh, but I wrote the Dream Architects and I got it published. So I'm apparently, uh, at least to some degree, an author. Yeah. Uh, and I'd like to explore that further, actually, if I had time, because it's it's a nice way to gather uh, and describe the world, mm-hmm. to gather thoughts and describe what's happening. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Now, our, our, our final question brings us back to the beginning. Uh, you get to have drinks with Fumito Ueda and Link. Um, what would you like to ask them? <laughs> what's, what's your question? <laughs> uh, I'd probably ask for me to add up for a job if I got drunk enough. I'd say, I'll do anything to work for you in a kind of a desperate, clingy way. So uh, I guess that would be embarrassing. And then Link, I'd want to know if he really wants to save Zelda. Because as long as he hasn't, He's the hero of this endless adventure. But once he <laughs> saves her, he he's like done with, right? He's this has-been who, oh, you remember that guy Zelda? No, Link? Yeah, is that the fat guy in the tower? Yeah. That's... Him. <laughs> he, 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 he used to be important. Oh, really? Well, who would have known? So I, w- I would like to know, Link, honestly, do you want to save Zelda or do you just want to keep on going forever? Uh, keeping her unsaved. Yeah, that's what I would want to know. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I like it. I like it a lot. Well, David, that that does it for the show. Thank you so much for for sitting down with me and chatting about the Dream Architects as as well as just kind of your your whole history. Um, so hopefully, people have enjoyed our conversation, which uh, I think is is more or less a taste of of what they would get if they went and checked out your book. So if you could kind of send us out by letting people know uh, where they can go to, to get their hands on a copy. 
Yes, sir. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me. It's been really fun. Uh, you've had some amazing questions that made me laugh and, and think about things I haven't thought about in a long time. So thanks for uh, jogging my memory a little bit as well. Uh, I think my book is available through uh, my publisher's homepage, uh, Grand Central Publishing, or I bet, uh, you know, any kind of online retailer that you usually like to buy your books from, either audio or print or uh, digital, uh, you should find it. So uh, it shouldn't be hard. Uh, it's all over the place, man. Fantastic. Well, there will be links for that in the uh, show notes so people um, can go from here and, and check that out and uh, give it a read or give it a listen if they want to. Um, so I actually, just before the interview, I was, I was listening to the Audible uh, excerpt and I went ahead and picked up a copy. So I will be listening to that hopefully in the next couple of weeks, which I am uh, I'm very excited about. But thank you once again and uh, good luck as you guys continue to, to navigate uh, 2021 and uh, you know work towards these exciting things that you've got with Star Wars and Avatar and the future of the division um and you know possibly other books in in your future i i look forward to to all of it so thank you yeah, once why again. not and uh yeah yeah let's hope so thank you man and then let's hope that the division isn't as prophetic as it has been historically because that would be bad news for all of us so take care everyone and thanks for listening <laughs>